Today we are going to discuss Season 3, Episode 3, Physician Heal Yourself. Now, Episode 3 has traditionally been written by Dallas, and it is traditionally a dialogue-heavy episode, not a plot-heavy episode. Um, He has already said he is not going to do that going forward, that it takes too much time for him to concentrate on writing an entire episode himself without the team. Um, I think all the episodes are team, you know, are, are written by the team, but he, he, so he is the primary writer of this. And like the other episode, third episodes, it is primary, it is very dialogue heavy versus plot heavy. There's actually there, but there's a lot that happens and we have a lot to cover. So as always, I'm going to try not to walk step-by-step through the episode as much as treat things um, thematically. But there are at least two controversies. I want to make sure we have plenty of time. Not necessarily controversies. One was a controversy. Um, there, There are some things people are having trouble with in this episode, and I want to make sure we have time to talk about those. So the episode opens with baby Jesus, who's absolutely adorable with his curly little Jewish hair. Um, And I don't know about you, but I immediately thought that he would be playing with John the Baptist. But we find out in this opening scene that it's Lazarus. And I think it's a really interesting take to think of Lazarus and Jesus as being childhood friends. We know that Jesus was close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. From the scriptures, we don't know why, we don't know their background. But so I think this is a really neat setup that maybe Lazarus and Mary and Martha were from Nazareth, and then business affairs took Lazarus down to Bethany. I think that's an interesting. So Bethany is down towards Jerusalem. And I think that's just an interesting little setup here. But so we have Lazarus and Jesus at a young age. We are introduced again to Joseph. That's the same actor who played Joseph in the um, the very, very beginning when when the, the first um, two Christmas episodes. So the first Christmas episode before The Chosen really took off, the episode that really led to The Chosen, and then the Christmas episode we got between the seasons. This is the same actor, but it plays Joseph. And um, But it's interesting that he changes Mary. So Mary is young Mary, and then later in the episode, she'll be young Mary, but old Mary actors. I thought that was an interesting choice. Um, So this episode takes place at Rosh Hashanah. So we have the the, um, look back at Jesus's childhood briefly to kind of introduce us to Lazarus and maybe introduce us to the fact that this is going to be a home episode about Nazareth. And then the opening, we have Jesus back home with his backpack, right? And he greets his mother um, with the, I'm not going to butcher the Hebrew, but he greets his mother with the greeting, um, happy new year, like for a good year. And we find that he's back in Nazareth to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is not called Rosh Hashanah in the scriptures. That's what we call the Jewish new year. Now, um, we find the prescriptions for Rosh Hashanah for the Jewish new year in Leviticus 23, 24 to 25. And, um, there are lots of things in this episode that are very true to the Jewish new year. So you have um, apples dipped in honey. That was a traditional, um, or challah dipped in honey. So we have challah sometimes with raisins. So we have Mary, you know, and Joseph, or sorry, Mary and Jesus eating challah 
with raisins. We have the next day, they're eating honey dipped with raisins. This is all very traditional um, Jewish New Year celebration. So they would celebrate the Jewish New Year and that would lead into 10 days later celebrating um, Yom Kippur, which would have been the Day of Atonement. So there's a celebration and then this day of, of repentance. But Rosh Hashanah was the birthday. They really, they celebrated it as the New Year. They saw it as the birthday of the universe when God creates Adam and Eve. And the Torah refers to this day as the day of shofar blowing. And I was going to show you, I don't, I didn't, forgot to grab it. Oh, hold on. Hold on. I'm coming. Um, so a shofar, which I happen to have here on hand. <laughs> um, so the shofar, it's so big, I can't even get it in the screen. So those people who are listening, um, to the podcast, you don't get to see the shofar, but so this would be a shofar, a ram's horn, and it would be blown. I'm not going to try to blow it. And so the Yom, or sorry, Rosh Hashanah is actually the day of the shofar blowing because there would be multiple blasts of the shofar. And we saw it again and again in the episode, which I thought was really good to show that this is what would happen. Um, they, like some report, some, um, some, um, Places I read said they would blow this a hundred times just in the morning service um, when the Torah was read. They would blast this a hundred times. And if you weren't there at the synagogue, you could hear it then. Um, There are lots of meanings they attribute to the blowing of the shofar. Uh, It's supposed to remind us of the the trumpet blast when a king is coronated. It's supposed to be a call to repentance. It's supposed to be a reminder of the binding of Isaac because that's one of the passages read during this, um, but I just thought everybody would want to see a shofar. Um, so they did the, all of that really well to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. So he's home for the holiday. So he comes to Mary and uh, he comes to Mary's home and comes home to his home, you know, to Nazareth. And we find out in the episode, it's going to be for the last time. Now, one thing I do want to address is the idea of James and Jude. So it's mentioned briefly that he says where James and Jude, Mary says they didn't, they didn't, you know, feel comfortable being here. So what the creators of the chosen are presenting are these two people, James and Jude. And I think rightly so they are not making a comment in the episode about whether these are Jesus's brothers or whether these are Jesus's cousins. I think upon first watch, because the insinuation is that they would be at Mary's house. I think the insinuation for many of us was that they were being treated as Jesus's brothers. And um, I think there's just a few things I want to say. Jesus, Mary, so from the very beginning of the church's teaching, from the very beginning, Mary was seen as perpetually virgin. Um, Now, Dallas has said publicly that he didn't want to make a statement whether or not James and Jude were um, his brothers or whether they were his cousins, but he said it was well known that James and Jude had a difficulty with Jesus's public ministry. I think what he's referring to is the scene in scripture when they say your mother and your brothers, James and Jude and, um, Simon, and I I don't have the passage. I should have looked up the passage, um, you know, are outside and they're upset, right? So there was this idea. So First of all, so Dallas says there's this, you know, um, well-known thought that James and Jude had a problem with Jesus's public ministry. 
I don't, I, I, there were, there are scenes in the scriptures where his mother and his brothers are looking for him, where the family of Jesus says, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, right? We get that. Um, but at the same time, we don't see in scripture specifically that James and Jude have a difficulty with his public ministry. So Jerome, if you want to read more about James and Jude and the brothers of Jesus, Jerome addressed this in 383 in an excellent, excellent, comprehensive um, letter against Helvidius. And you can find it online, um, Against Helvidius, St. Jerome, 383. He addressed the issue of, of Mary's perpetual virginity, of whether or not Mary had other children. And, and he specifically addresses who these, who James and Jude are. And he addressed it so clearly that the question about Mary's virginity does not resurface until the modern era. So Luther, for example, held to the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother. Um, and so I would recommend, if you were interested, it's, it's a lengthy letter, but Jerome handles all of this. So we know that there are relatives of, of Jesus mentioned several times. Um, okay, so here we go. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas are called the brothers of Joseph. And the New Testament, the writers make it clear, really, that these are relatives of Joseph, of Jesus, but aren't necessarily sons of Mary. Now, I, I'm glad that Dallas does not portray them as sons of, of Mary, because it's very clear when we look, especially at Matthew 27, 56, Matthew 27, 56, that these boys are sons of another Mary. So if you look at Matthew 27, and again, there's a lot we could say. So the term for brothers is um, is also used for cousin, for male relative. Abram, for example, is called Lot's brother, whereas we know that Abram was Lot's uncle. So the idea is that in the ancient, especially in the Hebrew language, there wasn't this idea of well, you're my nephew and you're, you're all brethren, you're all brothers. And when the writers wrote in Greek, they adopted this and they used this term. So Matthew 7, 56, Matthew 27, 56 says, there were also many women there. This is at the crucifixion. Among them, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So this isn't Mary, this isn't the Blessed Mother, right? That Why would they call the Blessed Mother Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, when she, you know, she's at the foot of the cross? We also see it in Mark, um, Mark 16, sorry, yeah, Mark 16, 1. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices to the resurrection. So James and Joseph are historically the sons of Mary of Cleopas. Mary of Cleopas um, is traditionally, I mean, we have the ancient writings. Like we're not guessing at this. We have people who knew these people. We have people who wrote about these people. Mary of Cleopas, Cleopas was Joseph, was probably Joseph's brother. So why would Mary, the mother of Jesus, have a sister Mary? That's weird, right? We wouldn't have Mary and her sister Mary Right. This isn't the Bob Newhart show with Dar Larry, Daryl and Daryl. Right. So why does Mary have a sister, Mary? Well, her sister, Mary is actually her sister-in-law, Mary. 
married to Cleopas, and they have James and Joseph. There are other writings about the fact that um, maybe Mary was married twice and had sons by Alpheus and sons by um, Cleopas, and that's why we have kind of James and Joseph mentioned more, or sorry, James and Jude mentioned more often than Joseph and Simon. Um, but basically, to I, I hope this isn't too confusing, but to wrap this up, we have a figure of James. Um, he's mentioned in Galatians. He's mentioned in Acts. He was a leader in the early church. Paul meets with him in Galatians. Christ appears to him. Um, we have him at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts. And it's this James who is the brother of Joseph or of Jesus. We know this. He's called the brother of Jesus. He's not the brother of him biologically, as we would refer. He is his cousin. And tradition tells us this is James the Less, who becomes Bishop of Jerusalem and writes the epistle. So um, Christy says, when I lived in Spain, the family I lived with, the mother and all five daughters were named Mary. Doesn't seem odd to me. Okay, so Mary, maybe Mary had a sister Mary. But it's more likely that Mary of Cleopas was Joseph's um, sister-in-law, was Mary's sister-in-law. So there's a lot we can talk about. And if you have questions, throw it in the chat. But while I was grateful that Dallas doesn't go into the controversy, doesn't call them the brothers of James, or brothers of Jesus, I thought mentioning them in this context um, without further was a little confusing to people. And it's not the, it's not just the Catholic tradition that Mary's perpetually virgin. It's not just the Catholic tradition that that James and, and Jude are sons of someone else. So um, Jane, jo, so this family, Jude, Joseph, James, and Simon, would have all probably been his cousins in some relation. Um, so there's, I just wanted to clear that up for people who might have been confused. Um, another point is, um, why would Jesus give Mary to John at the foot of the cross if there's James and Jude hanging out, right? And we know that James and Jude didn't have an issue with Jesus at the end because James becomes a leader of Jerusalem and writes the epistle of James. So I would say that James actually is the apostle, James the Less, who in this in The Chosen is not depicted as his cousin, which is fine. Um, there's also this idea that there might be a third James. But um, why would Jesus give Mary to John at the foot of the cross if Jude and, J and James are hanging around? Um, so that was one thing I just kind of wanted to address this idea of, of this throwaway line that, you know, Dallas doesn't make, he doesn't want to make a big deal about the siblings. And he says that publicly, I think we can make a big deal about the fact that they're his cousins because that's who they historically were. Um, and again, nobody has argued against the perpetual virginity of Mary until recent era, because Jerome shut the argument down so well in 383. And so it's funny that now in 2022, 2023, we are thinking we know more than somebody knew in 383. So the scene with Mary, I know a few of you didn't like it, that you felt like maybe he didn't treat her respectfully, that, um, you know, maybe he was a little hard to, you know, he didn't want to talk. Um, I thought it was actually very believable. He's tired. She's a good Jewish mother. She feeds him. She asks him all these questions. He doesn't like raisins. I really like the fact that he doesn't like raisins. But, um, you know, I thought it was a very human scene. 
And I loved how Mary wanted to know how each of the disciples, she said, I want to know about each one of them so I can pray for them. And I think she's really beautifully depicted here as that, that mother of the church that she will become, right? She's the mother of the apostles, the queen of the apostles. She's the mother of the church and she takes care of the church. He, when she asks him if he has favorites and he says, you know, I don't have favorites. I thought that would have been a perfect time to introduce John as the beloved disciple. Um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, Jesus doesn't have favorites. But John, when writing his epistle, clearly thinks he's a favorite. So I thought that would have been a cute way to um, introduce John, because I, I do want to see more of Jesus's relationship with John if he's going to be the beloved disciple at the time of the Passion. We're going to talk a little bit more about the box, but at the end, um, but I thought it was really beautiful that she does have an idea of what's about to come. Sometimes we depict the Blessed Mother as kind of not like being kind of clueless about this all like, oh, now there's going to be this passion. And I loved this scene how they really presented that Mary had an understanding of the suffering that lay ahead. Obviously, she was told by Simeon, a sword shall pierce your heart. But there's this understanding that they've had conversations about what lay ahead. And I thought this was one of my favorite parts of the episode that, you know, she admits, I don't know if I'm ready. And he says, you know, my time has come. I wish he would have said my hour, but that's okay. That would have been very John and I. Um, but that he, she admits, like, I don't know if I'm ready. And so they've clearly talked about it. And it then it makes sense why she's worried in the synagogue, right? Because maybe she doesn't know all the details, but she knows there's going to be suffering. She knows there's going to be death. Um, I loved, loved, loved how he said, if not now, why, what does that link back to? If you remember, that links back to the first season, the wedding feast of Cana, which also linked back to the finding of Jesus in the temple. And so in the finding of Jesus in the temple, you know, Jesus's public ministry is hinted at, but it's not time yet. So then at the wedding feast, she echoes his words and, and basically says it's time. And so I like it because actually Mary puts into motion this hour at the wedding feast of Cana. Mary's really the one that says it's time. And she puts the motion, the hour into motion, which when I give my talk on the wedding feast of Cana, I always play that up because I think we have to understand that as a mother, she was really surrendering her son at that moment at the wedding feast by asking that, knowing that this leads to the cross. And so at the wedding feast, she's really surrendering her relationship with Jesus and giving him over to his hour. And so I love that they linked back that, like, that if, like, he's reminding her, you know, you really put this into motion at the wedding feast, which was really, really beautiful. And then she's like, I'm shy. I'm fine. I'll be fine. Um, she's, she's a, you know, she's a human, she's a mom and she's going to have to struggle, um, with this. Um, so then he goes to sleep and again, we'll talk about the box at the end. Um, but I thought it was very authentic that he's sleeping with the sheep. That's where they would have had a place in their home. And we, we have this, when, when we found the home of Nazareth, right? We have Mary's home in Nazareth. We have found that they would um, have, you know, this little cave in the back of their, their homes were often built into rock. And this cave in the back 
had, um, that's where you would, you know, store your food maybe, or that's where you would keep your animals. And so you, a lot of times you would sleep there. Why? Because it was warm and cozy. And so that is also what they would have done at Bethlehem. So when Jesus is born, you know, in a stable, he's really born in the cave section of the house where the animals would have been kept. Why? Because it was, it was warm and cozy and it's, it's where you would sleep. So you would sleep with the sheep. Um, yes, and Gina says, you know, the sheep's name, that they're named Cain and Abel, was I thought was really sweet. I just hope Cain doesn't kill Abel. So moving forward, we have the introduction of this character, Lazarus, right? So Mary has told Jesus the night before, you know, Laz is in town. And again, I like the way they set up this idea that Lazarus is, you know, in Bethany, but he's come home just like Jesus has for the new year. We have the introduction back of Dinah and Rafi, if you remember them from the wedding feast. and. They help us out by, you know, talking about the wedding feast in case you've forgotten who they are. We have Mary and Martha, which is exciting to see. So this answers the question that um, Dallas is not going to interpret Mary Magdalene as Mary of Bethany, which I, I too think um, they were different people. Um, but do I think that? I don't know. I change my mind like every other month, whether I think Mary Magdalene is Mary of Bethany. And I don't know where I stand right now, but Dallas is coming down by saying, so half the church fathers say they're the same people. Half the church fathers say um, they're different people. I forget where I stand these days, but Dallas is clearly saying he thinks Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany are different people. Um, we have Lazarus's business in Bethany. I wonder what it is. I wonder if we're going to find out what it is, but he's so clearly a salesman, right? He convinces Rabbi Benjamin to let Jesus preach. He, um, I think they refer to him as Jesus's hype guy that day, right? So he's, he's like, he's the sanguine, you know, you know, making deals. And, and so I, he's clearly a businessman, right? Um, it's interesting. We have at the beginning, Lazarus and Mary Martha, you know, they're friends with Jesus, but they don't know who he is. And at the end, Lazarus is like, why didn't you tell me? Right. So now we have Lazarus believing. People are excited. I think this is really realistic that people are excited that, um, you know, we don't really think about that, that this this word has come back to his hometown, that this is what Jesus is doing. And now they're all excited to see him. Is he going to perform a miracle? You know, he's their success story. He's he's Nazareth's success story until he's not what they expect. And so we see clearly like we have a microcosm really of the greater idea that the Messiah is exciting when we think he's going to bring us political liberation. The Messiah is exciting when we think he's going to perform miracles and he's going to do what we want him to do. And he's going to, you know, but then he's not what we expect. And I don't want to just lay this on at the feet of the Jews either at that time, because so often, you know, the Catholic faith or Jesus is exciting to me when I can do what I want or when he's answering the prayers I want or when my life looks like I want. And then when he surprises me, when he asks me something difficult, when he does, you know, when he does something I, I wouldn't do, then Jesus doesn't become so great. Right. And so we look at ourselves, like how often are we, those people in Nazareth where we're excited when it means like, he's going to, you know, make us a bunch of wine. But then when he comes and actually says, I'm not going to liberate you from the Romans. Then we're like, wait a minute, what, then why am I following you? Right. And so to kind of use that scene that it's it's not just them back then, but when do I do that in my life? When do I reject Jesus because he's speaking hard truths? Because he's asking me to do something I'm not ready to do. 
because he's asking me to forgive someone I'm not ready to forgive because he's asking me to give up something I'm not ready to give up um, because he's not going to answer a prayer. Right. I've, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and he's not going to answer it the way I want him to answer it. He's not going to give me liberation from the Romans. He's not going to liberate me from an addiction. He's not going to like, then what do I still accept him? Do I still love him? Do I still n believe that he is the Messiah? Um, and of course, Rabbi Benjamin's suspicious. He might be a little jealous. Um, I think all of this character development is very, very good. Okay, the next book. So I wanted to address the siblings of Jesus. I don't know if I did a very good job doing that, but I wanted to address that. And now I want to address another kind of difficulty, I think, in this. So there's really three difficulties I want to address. Um, the second one I want to address here is the idea of the incarnation and the mystery of what it looks like when God becomes man. We see it very clearly in the game of Trigon, which I didn't have time to research if Trigon's a real sport. I kind of hope it is. Um, it sounds to me like something on Star Trek, but this, this sport they're playing, this ball, handball sport, and Jesus isn't good at it. And Dallas had said, this is something he's really thought about. Like, would Jesus be good at everything? And I have never really thought about, would Jesus be good at sports? Um, would he be bad at something? And so it really made me think and wrestle with the incarnation, which I think is an important part of the show, is, you know, how do we grapple with this mystery? What does it mean that God becomes man? What does it mean that he accepts the limitation of our humanity, that God takes on that limitation? What does that look like? And you know, is he like a little Superman running around who's really good at everything because he's actually not human? He's just God. Or is he just some regular guy that's like super holy? Or is he just some sort of mermaid like mixed between the two? Those are all heresies, actually. <laughs> um, those are all heresies that the church had to grapple with in the early church. And, and the, you know, the church has come out and said in the Nicene Creed, right, he's true God and true man. God from God, light from light, true God and true man, um, begotten, not made. We know what it doesn't mean, but it's still hard. There's still this theological discussion. What does that mean? And there's lots of ink spilled over, you know, do we have a very high Christology or a very low Christology? What do we, what does it look that like for God to become man? And what does that mean in Christ's everyday life? And the interpretation I like comes from um, Hans um, von Urs von Balthasar, who has this idea, and I've talked about this in previous seasons, that Christ surrenders everything to the Father and relies on the Father. And so in, in some ways, I think the Chosen, it really depicts us well. For example, in the calling of Matthew, he's walking and he stops and he kind of looks up and pauses and then turns. Almost as if like the father is telling him to call Matthew, not that he's a robot of the father, that would be another heresy, but, but that he's surrendering everything. And so even his divine knowledge, he surrenders to the father and relies on the father in that surrender. So again, it's a, the mystery of the incarnation is still a mystery. And so would he be bad at sports? Well, notice he says he hasn't played since he was last in Nazareth. He makes that. We say, we see that. Um, it makes sense then that he's bad because he hasn't practiced because he's human. Um, he he should practice with the apostles, apparently. Right. 
Uh, Christy said she just looked up Trigon, and it is a real game, according to Wikipedia. It was a Roman game with Greek origins. So that's interesting. We should start a Trigon League, apparently. I bet with chosen superfans, somebody already has. Um, and so, you know, if he hasn't played Trigon since he was in Nazareth, he's rusty. That's just human. Um, and so we have these questions about, you know, Jonathan said he interpreted this scene that, you know, this isn't how Jesus chooses to show his divinity. He's not going to choose to show he's God by being an amazing Trigon player. Like he, so in Jonathan's interpretation, he's like, well, you know, he could smack him down, right? And because he could perform a miracle or he could be extra good, right? But he's choosing not to, partly in that humility. And I was thinking how this causes the people really to exercise trust. Believing in him as the Messiah requires more faith. If he was a, all of a sudden came and was amazing at Trigon, you know, maybe be like, yeah, there is something with this guy, right? I want to follow this guy because he, but now you're like, I, I have a harder time believing and I'm choosing to exercise that faith. I'm choosing to exercise that trust that this isn't the way I would do it. My mom comments, do you notice how many times Jesus looked up? He does a lot in this, in my, one of my favorite uh, parts of this episode was he looked up at the father after he escaped. And he like smirked and that was fantastic. So they do depict that. And I think that's what they're depicting is there, there's this constant communication between the father and the son. And the, I think, this, I mean, the son had to surrender something. So we have questions about like, how does he learn? How does he learn to read from Joseph? Like that's challenging to us. Why doesn't he know the dog is dead? I, I really want to know if that brown dog die if that if there's a hidden meaning there there's a hidden like some sort of easter egg there um he asked about the dog and the dog has been dead for several months why wouldn't he know that um well he chooses to surrender so he has beatific knowledge he has infused knowledge and that's different than acquired knowledge and to have that human acquired knowledge in his humanity he would have acquired knowledge through experience like all of us and so he would have learned to read and so it's this mystery of how does he advance in age and wisdom, as the scriptures tell us, he would have to learn to read and he would have had to learn to play Trigon, right? And so I think this episode shows us that tension between, um, you know, between his humanity and his divinity and what does it actually look like in the incarnation? Um, Jackie said she finds it interesting that Jesus said no one ever noticed the dog. I, she said, you say a double meaning there, and that maybe I'm just slow. Like, is it supposed to make us think about, like, no one's really noticed Jesus until now? Like, they're going to notice him. But before he was, you know, without state, you know, Isaiah would say, like, we, we didn't even recognize him because he was without stately bearing. Maybe that's it. Uh, my mom says, what do you think about Joseph talking about how he wasn't Jesus's real father? Um, I guess that didn't hit me. I didn't take any notes on that. I will talk about his relationship with Joseph in a second, but he just kind of told him that we've talked about this before. I'm not your real father. Right. I, I don't remember if there was more to that. And it clearly didn't hit me because I didn't, um, I didn't take notes on that. So the other big chunk of the episode would have been in the synagogue. So this scene in the synagogue is pretty much word for word. Um, Luke 4, 
with some additions to fill in the details for us, right? So there's there's more dialogue, obviously, in Luke 4. But in Luke 4, we have Jesus preaching in the synagogue, and we have, um, so he, it, it happens in Matthew and Mark, but later in the public ministry. And so Dallas is using the account in Luke 4, which is earlier. It actually comes um, before Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it comes before Jesus preaches or Jesus calls the apostles. So in Luke, he begins his public ministry. He goes to Nazareth and he is rejected. But this is where we have. um, Oh, interesting. Gina says the dog didn't welcome him. Um, So usually, right. He says like the dog didn't welcome me. And so it's a foreshadowing of that. He's not going to be welcomed in his hometown. I like that. See, I like these conversations. Because you all see things differently than I do, and I like it. Um, so it's in Luke 4 where we get that he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah. So it's Luke 4, 16 to 30. And he's referencing, he's reading Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, and Isaiah 58, 6. So it's Isaiah 61, 1 to 2 plus Isaiah 58, verse 6. And it's a reference to the Jubilee year, which we find in Leviticus 25. And so there was a Jubilee year that celebrated every 50 years when the land would be rested. Um, There would be a a resting of the land. So the land would take its Sabbath and you would remit all your debts. You would release your slaves. You would give property back to who it actually belonged to, the original family owners. And this was a foreshadowing, Isaiah says, is a foreshadowing, this Jewish practice of the Jubilee is a foreshadowing of what the Messiah will come to do, release um, the um, Jewish people from their slavery, their bondage, release their debt, their guilt, their sin. And, And so we have Jesus announcing that now the Messiah has come. He's come to release their debts. What are their debts? But their debt to sin, right? They, he's come to forgive them. He's come to release their debts. He's come to release them from bondage, not from Rome, which is what stirs everybody up, but from sin, from idols, from addiction, right? From what they need to be released from. He's come to give them an even greater release. And it's interesting, release to captives, the Greek word that Luke uses is the same Greek word that he often uses for forgiveness. So this is really the theme of Jesus's ministry in this episode, that he's come to release, he's come to free us from bondage. And that causes controversy because, you know, the rabbi says we're the chosen people. We don't have spiritual debt. There was this understanding that as the chosen people, they weren't in debt. They had the covenant. And Jesus then, as he does in Luke 4, proceeds to talk about the Gentiles, um, Naaman the Syrian, the widow with Elijah. And, and, you know, I'll read, this is what Jesus says in the chosen, not in scripture, but in the chosen. You may be the chosen seed of Abraham. You may be the people of the covenants, but that will not bring you salvation. If you cannot accept that you are spiritually poor and captive in the same way that a Gentile woman and a Syrian leper recognize their need, now, this would be hugely controversial because he's and he he does it throughout his public ministry. Right. He he says, like, just because you're of the chosen people is not a ticket 
to salvation. And there will be Gentiles, he says in Matthew's, in, in Matthew's um, discourse in 25, 26-ish, he says, like, there will be Gentiles entering, there'll be tax collectors entering heaven before you, there will be sinners entering heaven before you. Like, there's other people. There, there are other people who are, um, who are going to enter heaven before you. And this is, this is a, a huge deal, right? So he says, if you do not realize that you need a year of the Lord's favor, then I cannot save you. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about there. Um, so he is not, so I want to be clear, Jackie, it's not that Jesus is rejecting the old covenant. He is not. We don't believe, there's an there's a idea of the replacement theory where the Jews have been replaced now by the church. Um, we don't believe the Jews have been replaced because we believe their covenant is always um, is true. Their covenant was a true covenant. Their true covenant was a valid covenant. He has come to fulfill that. And so they are the chosen people. They still are the chosen people. But Christ has come and he is showing us it's not our ethnicity that will save us. It's not our our the law, right? Paul says it again and again. When Paul says you are not saved by works in Romans, he's talking about the works of the old covenant, the works of the law. Why? Because Christ has come to fulfill that. That was just a shadow of what Christ was come to bring. That wasn't the be all and end all because it couldn't save them as we've read in Hebrews lately at daily mass, right? That that Hebrews, it's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and you're never cleansed of sin because those sacrifices were just shadows of the one true sacrifice that will save you from sin. And so it's not that the old covenant is bad. It's that the old covenant was incomplete, was a foreshadowing of what Christ was to bring in the new covenant. And so he says, if you do not realize that you need a year of the Lord's favor, then I cannot save you. There's a lot to think about because this is true. He can't, it's, it's not that he's rejecting the Jewish people. It's that he's saying, you need to recognize that you are, you need a savior. That your law is not going to save you. Jackie says that she's, she says, yes, that that's what people believe during that scene. Absolutely. That they believed in that moment that he's rejecting the old covenant. And he's saying, I'm not rejecting it. I'm fulfilling it. But that would have been hugely controversial. So just because you're a certain ethnicity doesn't mean you're automatically saved. Just because you belong to a certain church doesn't mean you're automatically saved. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're automatically saved. You have to repent. You This isn't just lip service. This is a completely different way of life. And so it's interesting because there was a, a controversial post after this episode that I'm going to address on Instagram. But I would say that that Jesus actually contradicts even that controversial post. That it's It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that is going to bring you salvation. It's not baptism. It's, it's a, it's a, it is baptism, right? Baptism is one step, but it's not enough to say I've been baptized and now I'm going to heaven. Baptism is one step. It's a step of justification, but we have to continue on and be sanctified. It's a process. And so we can't say once saved, always saved because Christ is calling us to a different way of life. He's calling us to live according to his gospel. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord, right? That's straight out of Matthew 7, 21. You know, many will say, Lord, Lord, 
not all who said, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one that does the will of my father in heaven. And what's the will of his father in heaven? The Ten Commandments, living the gospel, loving your neighbor as yourself, um, living the Sermon on the Mount, being merciful, um, praying, fasting, giving alms. All these things are doing the will of the Father. And so he is calling us. The law won't save you. It's true. Jesus saves you. Um, And so we have to constantly convert and be sanctified. Sanctification is a process. And so, again, that's why he says, It's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. It's not just enough to call upon the name of the Lord. We have to change our life. And that's what he's preaching. And can you imagine him walking into a synagogue saying, you have to believe in me. And they're like, who are you? You're the teenager that was really bad at Trigon. And this is why it gets controversial. Um, There was some controversy with an Instagram post. um, And there was a caption from this episode. Um, So the, the, the caption was added. It was not in the episode. The caption was, Here's the bad news. Your religion, your church, the law, and your efforts to be righteous won't save you. So far, it's true. Jesus saves us, right? The law won't save us. Um, My efforts aren't saving me. God saves me. And it's a total um, unmerited free gift. Justification. Salvation. The second part of the post said, Here's the good news. You don't need your religion, your church, the law, or your efforts to be righteous to be saved. And that's not true. The first part, properly understood. The second part, no. Yes, Jesus saves me. And only Jesus saves me. But it's not apart from those other things. I need the church. That's why he founded it. That's why he gives us the public ministry of the apostles. And how do I access the public ministry of the apostles? How do I access his public ministry without the church where it's living and active today? So I need the church. I need to live differently. It's not that my efforts to be righteous alone save me, but they do save me in the process of my sanctification. Like James says, show me your work. I'll show you my works and you can see my faith through my works. So the, the only time faith alone is found in the Bible is in James 2, when James says, faith alone won't save you. See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2. And so it, Christy says, who made the post? Was it from the chosen account? Yes, it was from the chosen account. It was after this episode. And I think it falsely then led people to, to interpret what was happening in this scene in a, in a way that it doesn't need to be interpreted. So we do need the church. We do need our works. We aren't saved solely by those. Um, and so I don't know who Jackie asked who made the, I don't know who made the post. It was just on the chosen page. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that this is a really important scene for us to take into our own lives and say, like, if I don't realize that I need forgiveness, the Lord can't save me. That's absolutely true. The Lord is not going to save me against my will. If I don't know I need salvation, he can't save me. But it's a radical, it's a radical message for those people at that time. Um, it's, his statement, I got, I am the law of Moses, got a lot of controversy. I guess it's in the Book of Mormon. Um, it, really, I, I wasn't that bothered by it. It's just, I think, interpreting Jesus's other words throughout his public ministry. If he is the word, um, you know. I think he's the fulfillment of the law. 
and I wasn't I wasn't bothered by that. So we have this passage in Luke four. The end of it the end of it is when the people in the synagogue heard this, they were all filled with fury. They rose up, drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of a hill on which their town had been built to hurl him down headlong. But he passed through them the midst of them and went away. I think this is another one of those passages that we don't picture a lot of times. Like, what was it like? What did it look like? We kind of skim over it like we have in so many other passages that he's bringing to light in this season and or in this series. And um, I used to picture him like passing through them like miraculously. But I think this makes more sense that, you know, by the time they got there, they would have calmed down. They would have not wanted really to do this. And he was able to kind of just pass through them and walk away. I think this is a very human way um, rather than him manifesting some divine miracle to pass through them. I do want to know what Jesus said to Lazarus in the synagogue. I thought it was really, there was some nice comedic relief where, you know, Lazarus is trying to defend him and he's like, that's not what he was saying. And Jesus is like, that is what I'm saying. And he's like, you're not helping, right? Like there's this idea that like, come on, Jesus. Um, I thought there was a good comedic relief there. Um, and I do want to know what, what he said to Lazarus, I guess, like take mom home. We never find out. Right. I don't think we find out in the after show. They joked about it, but I don't think we find out in the show. Um, and I really like that smirk he gives to the father as he's, as he's walking away. Um, you know, he's walking away and he's like, not today. Notice he says, this isn't going to happen today. We have the scene with Joseph. I love that he goes to Joseph's tomb. Um, it was sneaky in the promo how many people thought it was Lazarus because they knew we were getting introduced to Lazarus. And they were like, is this Lazarus's tomb? This is too early to be Lazarus's tomb. But it was Joseph's tomb. I have mixed feelings about the Joseph scene. I have to say, I... I love the depiction of him being young and being strong and being someone who has fun. You know, Mary says at the beginning, he loved the celebration. You know, was it, would he have teased Jesus in that way? Um, I know some of you had an issue with, you know, like he just seemed kind of like a, I don't know, a fool that then was like teasing, like scaring Jesus. Would he have done that? Um, I think some fathers would, I don't know. So I'm not completely in love with everything about Joseph. I definitely had problems with him. If you remember in the Christmas episode, I did not like the fact that they kind of just depict him as like not really loving Mary and just kind of like, doo, 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 right. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent in love with Joseph's depiction, but I do like that. He's young. I love that. He says that being Jesus's father was the greatest honor that he could ask for. And I think we have to realize how much Jesus loved Joseph. So I loved how Joseph, he went to pray at Joseph. I mean, we would say he went to pray at Joseph's tomb. Um, he went to visit Joseph's grave. You know, I think to really think about the grief that Joseph would have, that Jesus would have had at the death of Joseph, you know, Jesus was going to raise others. He was going to raise Jairus's daughter. He was going to raise Lazarus. He was going to he was going to raise the, the the son of the widow of Nain and he wasn't going to raise his own father. And he had to watch his father suffer and die. Um, I think it's important to think about that grief that he had, that how much he loved, loved Joseph. And so I liked that we kind of went back to Joseph, but am I a hundred percent in love with Joseph's depiction? No. Um, 
but I think it could have been a lot worse. Okay, so wrapping up, we have the idea of the bridal. Um, so I really don't understand. So I know, okay, so remember, if you remember from the episode, supposedly this bridal was passed down through the house of Judah since the Exodus. And it was passed down father to son, father to son. Now Jesus won't have a son, and but Joseph is giving it to him. And it's a remembrance of their bondage. And so I think it plays really well here, obviously, with this theme of the true jubilee, the true release, the true forgiveness, you know, being led into freedom, but true freedom, not the promised land on earth, but the promised land in heaven. So I think maybe this is obvious to everybody. I think he'll use it on Palm Sunday. I think he'll use it when he leads them into the um, the holy city because he's beginning his hour he's leading them into freedom maybe that's obvious to everyone that's what i'm assuming it, we're going to see the bridal again because this episode is about giving release i wasn't crazy about it um i mean honestly would it look that good after 40 generations i mean that was a good looking bridal joseph says like it doesn't look that great would anything left be left of it after the exodus i just i thought it was a real stretch and maybe I'm going to change my mind about it, but it felt like they should have run it past some people. And some people would have been like, you know what? I don't think the bridal would look that good after 40 generations. It just seemed, it seems like an odd thing to add. Um, and I know I don't want to get ahead of, and talk about other episodes, but I know a lot of people have had issues this season. There's a lot going on this season that isn't in scripture. And that's not, anything new we have to remember that about the chosen look at the whole first episode the whole first episode is not scriptural right we didn't get scriptural to like the what the fourth episode and so it's not new that the chosen is delving into these other storylines but i think some of them really make me scratch my head like i'm all about a storyline that's gonna pay off in the end i'm all about mary magdalene like that storyline was amazing even peter i have to admit peter being in trouble with the romans i think that played off um be him you know like that made the miracle so much or am amazing but i need the extra storylines to really pay off and that's where i'm struggling this season i'm okay with the extra storylines i'm okay if the bridal the bridal it just better be pretty amazing otherwise why is it such an emphasis there's so many other things and there are several other storylines we'll talk about in the next few seasons the next few episodes that i just i i i'm remaining you know hesitantly optimistic that they're going to pay off but i don't know so as we end, I love how Lazarus says, you know, next Rosh Hashanah, come to Bethany. I think that's a great setup for why does Jesus go to Bethany? You know, obviously he's going to go to Bethany for Passover because you have to pilgrimage to pass. You have to pilgrimage to Jerusalem Passover. He would have spent the night in Bethany as we have him right before his passion when Mary um, washes his feet, anoints his feet. But, um, but I, I thought that was interesting how, um, you know, he's like, come spend time with Mary, Martha and I. And so he's, he, that's going to be Jesus's new home base. That's a good setup for that. And then just staring at that tomb and that word soon that we've been getting a lot since the very first season when, or maybe it was the second season when, when Peter said, you know, asks Jesus about the word soon. And um, we have that word coming up again and again soon. 
we know his hours coming and they're looking at that tomb and the three of them just together knowing what's about to come. Um, you know, Lazarus doesn't know. Lazarus doesn't know that he's going to be in a tomb, right? But um, but we do, right? So I'm going to glance up and look at what comments I've missed. That's all I really have to say about the episode. Um, Gina says, what do you think about Jesus telling Mary she should leave Nazareth? I hadn't really focused on how this episode would have affected her. I hadn't either, right? Like when you read Luke 4, you don't really think like, oh, Mary would have been there. And how would this have changed her? I I like that that idea. I like the idea that Mary was traveling at a time with the disciples. And I think it seems natural for her to stay with Lazarus, Mary and Martha for a bit. We know that she doesn't, you know, by the time of the passion, we know Joseph in the scriptures, we know Joseph's deceased because Joseph's not there. And so that's why Jesus then gives her to John. So who would have been taking care of Mary during this time? I think she would have been with the apostles. She would have been with the women who traveled. She would have been with Mary Magdalene. She would have been with Salome. She would have been with Joanna, all the women traveling with him. And I think it makes sense for her to go to Bethany. So I, I, it makes sense. You're absolutely right. Like I wouldn't have, I didn't think about how this affected her. It would have affected her. She, you know, may have been rejected herself by, by the people of Nazareth. Um, yeah, lots of distractions, multiple storylines. And again, we always had, I mean, if you if you think back when we first started watching it, it was like, what the heck is happening with Peter? We could barely keep track of who was Peter and who was Andrew and who was, what was going on, right? And so in some ways that hasn't changed. And I could see Dallas defending it saying, nothing's changed. We've always focused on these extra storylines, but I'm feeling like the storylines are getting more and more distracting. And um, like, I don't, I, I won't have any spoilers, but we'll talk about them when they get there. Um, so if you have any other questions, throw them in the chat. I am wrapping up. Um, I had a little technical difficulty at the beginning and a little technical difficulty in the middle. So I'm hoping we can save all this somehow. Um, I'm hoping I can still post it to YouTube and post it to the podcasts, but okay. Excellent. Um, Christy says, it's interesting to meet the characters who don't know yet what is to come, but we know. And isn't that, it's just a fascinating way when we read the scriptures so often, we know the end of the story and maybe some of the scenes lose their punch because we know the end of the story. But I think what this show is really doing is making us step back and put ourselves in the scene as Ignatius, as St. Ignatius would say to do, putting ourselves in those scripture scenes and thinking, what would I have thought? What would I have felt? That is Lexio Divina. That is Ignatian scriptural meditation. And so what I think is, is really beautiful about The Chosen is that we are going back. Like, what would it have been like to be Lazarus? Who was Lazarus? What would it have been like? You know, Mary is so, uh, Mary Bethany is so excited, you know, because her friend, you know, and who knows that like Mary Bethany maybe had a crush on Jesus when he was in high school, right? We don't know. And so now, like, I, I think she was gorgeous. I loved the casting of Mary Martha. I don't know whether I said that before, but I just think they are exactly how I pictured them. I love them. And, um, you know, their their friend now is 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 making this big scene, but they didn't know where you know, the, the, they didn't know he was the Messiah and now they know, and, you know, just to put ourselves and not know what is happening, I think is an important thing. Um, Ben says, I grew up in a charismatic church where they blew the shofar. That's amazing. 
I was going to try to blow it, but I, I figured I'd blow it. Huh. So I, I didn't try publicly live on YouTube. Um, well, good. Chrissy says, I gave a much more positive impression of this episode. She'll go back and watch it again with my points in mind. And on that note, we are going to be looking at episode four, probably not next week, but the next week. So um, again, I've never done these while the season has been going on. This is new. Always before we watched the entire season and then did the commentaries together. And so I'm actually going to wait. I'm going to be out of town next week. I'm going to wait and do episode four, which actually will come after some of you have seen the finale, which is coming out um, in theaters and then streaming. So hang tight as always. I'll announce it on Instagram and Facebook when I'm doing episode four, but there's a lot to unpack in episode four. Episode four is the double episode, part one and part two, but I will be doing two. I will be doing two separate episodes on those because there's just a lot happening. So thanks for all coming. And as always, uh, push that thumbs up because that helps and share it with your friends. There are lots of people just now discovering the podcast and the YouTube lives. And I love to see new names and um, new comments and get everybody's feedback. We have a lot of non-Catholics listening and watching, which is great. While this is a Catholic commentary on The Chosen, I it's not just for Catholics. Everybody can listen. I want to hear everybody's points of view. And we all kind of together, I think, share insights in a, in a fresh new way. My aunt says, are you going to watch the finale in the theater? Sadly, it's only in the theater for one day and back-to-back days. And I am going to be giving a talk in Portland, Oregon and Eugene, Oregon. So I'm going to be out of town giving talks to teachers, teacher in service for the Archdiocese of Portland and a parish talk in Eugene. And so I'm going to miss seeing it in the theater, but I will watch it streaming. And if it stays in the theater, I'll get to watch it in the theater. So, okay. Thanks for joining me and stay tuned. We'll talk about episode four soon.